Um, it's been we never had to worry about it. Yeah, fortunately, you know, every the city essentially shut down on Friday, but fortunately there was no ice on the road. Oh, okay, there you go. That's always the best. <laughs> so good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us. This is Dyslexia Coffee Talk. I'm your host, Ashley, and today we have with us Josh Clark, the head of, I'm going to say it wrong, the Shank School. See, yeah, you, you, you actually were going to say it right, and then you stopped yourself. It is the Skank School. It's what you don't Skank. think it should be. Exactly. <laughs> it is the Skank School. <laughs> see, I knew it. See, because I, I overthink it. I do. You definitely caught me on that one. <laughs> Everybody does. Everyone's like, there's no way it can be the Skank School. There's just no way. <laughs> so thank you for joining us. Um, like you and I were talking about, I was really excited to have you come on because of your dedication to parent outreach and all of the work that you've been doing in the community. Um, there's so much that we could talk about. I kind of almost don't even know where to start first. You just recently launched something in partnership with Microsoft, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, essentially, yes. So I, um, I have the great privilege of being part of, of a much larger uh, and much more impressive uh, uh, effort uh, by um, a group called Made by Dyslexia, which is a global non-for-profit, um, uh, UK-based, and uh, they partnered uh, with the Skank School uh, uh, to, uh, and then in turn with Microsoft, to push out a, um, a series of kind of educational uh, uh, videos, advocacy training, um, actually, let me back that up, awareness training. I wouldn't call it advocacy training, because um, obviously we know those are very different, but awareness training really aimed at families and teachers um, about what is dyslexia, what does this mean, um, how do we uh, support kids um, holistically, uh, you know, the reading piece, but the, you know, that doesn't stop there, uh, what does that all look like? So, you know, we've actually done two parts now. There was um, the, the awareness piece that got pushed out, and then about a year ago, um, they uh, uh, pushed out, not quite a year, a second level, which is a little bit more specific for teachers, that's a little bit more about what to do in the classroom. Um, so it, they try to, you know, balance both for families and then for teachers as well. Oh, wow. That's, that's quite an initiative for sure. Um, and I know made by dyslexia, sorry, they're doing incredible work, I think, and especially trying to raise awareness within the business community. Yes, um, they're doing super cool stuff there. Yes, it's really yeah. impressive. Which is, which is so necessary. I mean, you know, I, I work for rather, over the course of my career, I've worked for rather large organizations and I like to see how corporations now are starting to embrace all kinds of diversity. Yeah, yeah, it's, but, it's interesting, yeah. We've done, um, you know, this idea, you're right, especially, um, you know, in corporations and there's these affinity groups now where, you know, folks within a corporation who identify and, uh, you know, kind of a, within certain characteristics have opportunities to kind of talk about what does that mean for them. And um, uh, we've had a couple opportunities. I just, um, uh, a friend of mine is kind enough to include me. We're going to do something for Salesforce because Salesforce is having like an affinity group conversation around dyslexia. Um, and yeah, it's interesting, and, you know, because I, so I'm dyslexic. My kids are dyslexic. I work in, you know, I'm like Mr. Dyslexia at this point. So I forget sometimes. I'm not the most empathetic person to understand sometimes the trials and tribulations of being immersed around people who don't fully understand that, especially, you know, in a, in a, in a career path. Um, but I I'm, I'm, uh, have the honor of being on the uh, board of the International Dyslexia Association. And we have another board member um, who uh, works in a, in a corporation. And um, he just recently shared um, he's dyslexic and he's gay. And he was telling me I had a lot easier time coming out as gay in my corporation than I did sharing with people I was dyslexic, um, which I was like, wow, oh my gosh, that was important for me to hear and have that perspective. Yeah. Um, so I'm not dyslexic, but I definitely agree with that because I, I know that I, I work with numbers all day long, but the way that I learn numbers is I'm extremely visual you know, I have to touch it. I have to feel it. I have to see the formulas. You can't talk to me about math because if you talk to me like the third number in, I'm gone. <laughs> but in a corporate environment, especially in corporate environments where the groups are dealing with numbers, I'm, I'm not in finance, but I'm sort of like attached to finance. Everybody is extremely auditory and, you know, they're just all number, 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 number. And I'm just kind of sitting there going, I swear I'm not dumb. 
I just can't follow what you're saying. And I always sort of bucked up against the idea that, you know, there was, there was one way to take in information. And because I've been sitting as a dyslexia advocate for now so many years in the corporate world as well, you know, I've really been pushing against them going, people need to take in information in alternative ways. And you can't think that somebody's stupid just because they're not taking in information exactly the same way that you're attempting to relate it. You're discounting all of the talent in the room by doing that. And so I'm happy to finally start to see change sort of come about in that as well. Yeah. It's a relief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's so interesting as you, as you say that too, because I, you know, I, th- I think it's probably all of us to some degree actually operate differently than we think everybody else operates, right? We have this kind of misconception that like, you know, the world works one way and then we're, we're, we're this outlier to some degree. Um, and if we all talk about that more, I think it'd be helpful. Um, but hearing you said, too, it also makes me think as a parent, you know, if a parent dyslexic kids and then, you know, talking to parents, I, I think that's also what's so important is helping our kids. Obviously, we, we have to advocate for them. We have to do all we can to help remediate the difficulties that they're bringing to, you know, certain academic tasks um, by nature of being dyslexic. But I, I think we also have to focus on helping them be proud and be confident in being dyslexic, because that's, you're going to, you're going to get to work one day and it's going to be different. You are not going to get to the same route. And, you know, how can we help make sure that they, you know, all of our kids are going to have, my kids are going to be in therapy, but like it's, it's going to be my fault, but I'm hoping it's not because they're dyslexic, right? I I don't want that to be the piece that sends them to therapy because I want them to always say, yeah, I think this, I do think differently. This is how I do things, but not hide from it. Um, I think it's just, yeah, so important. I completely agree. And, you know, that's, that's what I've always tried to like instill in my own child as I'm sitting here, you know, we used to drive up to a school and I, I know I've said this many times before audience, I apologize for that, but you know, we would drive up in front of a school and I would give them a mantra and I would be like this place and these people do not get to define you. A test is a moment in time and that's all that it is. And the test is, not a true measurement of your knowledge because there's so many other factors in that moment in time that can impact your output on that test. You know, do you have a migraine? You know, is your stomach upset? Where's your anxiety levels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I was just like, I, I didn't like the fact that I had to approach his education with him from being like, these people really aren't going to understand you. And I hate to do that, but at the same time, I felt the need for him to understand that so that he wasn't seeking approval because he, you know, he started off school desperately wanting his teacher's approval and he fell in love with his kindergarten teacher and he fell in love with his first grade teacher. You know, he's fawning all over them, trying to sit in their lap, you know, hugging on them, you know, read me a story kind of a thing. And I'm sitting here going, they don't understand what's going on with you. And once I understood that, I was like, no love them, that's fine, but you need to understand these people don't understand the way, the way that you learn. And that's not their fault. We're going to teach them. But if you can come into this understanding that you're not understood, maybe we can get through this easier. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. There's something so sobering about having to have that conversation with your eight-year-old, right? Um, <laughs> but it's true. And I have a great colleague at the Skank School, and I, I just plagiarize her all the time. And she always says, um, uh, uh, dyslexics were made for the world, but not for school. And it's so true. And I, you know, I, I feel like as a parent of dyslexic kids and as talking to other parents, I always say, we just got to get them through school. We just, yeah. just got to get them through school. And I, and you're right. It's interesting you talk about, you know, they, um, they, you know, seeking approval and we have to help them early on understand that and you're right and as you, you know, that's what school is school is built around this idea of we need you to be seek our approval right your behavior is dependent upon you buying into this thing so that you behave correctly and we're going to constantly measure your approval we're going to give you constant messages of whether or not you are meeting or failing to meet our what, what we define as approval i mean that's just what school is um which we get a larger argument of it is you know my, my other frustration in life is that we 
make kids for 18 years go to this thing that's supposed to pair them for life that looks nothing like life, that in no way, shape or form do we, like we all know none of our lives mirror what we do in school. Um, 100%. <laughs> it frustrates the stew out of me. And it's fine to say you have to do this thing, but don't say we're doing this thing because it's what's going to prepare you for life. It's more Completely like what's going to occupy you until you get to life. And I couldn't articulate it that well, but you're, you're spot on. I, you know, I can't stand that, you know, uh, career readiness thing. It's <laughs> nothing to do with careers. And nothing. people that are saying that you of all people should understand that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it drives me nuts. And I, I, you know, when, you know, as young as eighth grade, a kid doesn't get an algebra one in eighth grade. Oh, oh my God, what's, what, what track are they? And, and it's just, utterly ridiculous. And, and I spend my day, like I've built my life and my career around avoiding things I don't like and I'm not good at. And there's a lot of privilege I bring to that to be able to do that without question, right? Um, but it, I, it, it's nonsense to me that, and, you know, it, it's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, um, I really like to run, but I, I, my brother, older brother makes fun of me. He says, I'm, I'm the greatest athlete as long as there's no ball involved. Because uh, I have just zero coordination whatsoever. So, but I really like to run. But I always talk about, you know, I, I'm terrible at sports, but it's not like I'm expected to be good. Like no one's like, oh, well, what's going to happen to you in life? You can't catch the ball. But we give you a, like an algebra test. And it's like, oh my God, you didn't know the quadratic equation. How can you possibly, you know, uh, uh, be an insurance salesman? And it's like, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my other beef with it is not only is it an environment where it's setting up our children to constantly seek approval, but it's, it's from day one, it's an environment of a level of competition that doesn't exist anywhere. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, that's so true. You know, um, because competition within sports is a very different thing. Competition in the workplace healthy competition in the workplace, let me rephrase that, <laughs> is a different thing because everything else is more about the team mind and yeah. sports where it's an individual an individual event that's individual competition. That's setting the bar for yourself and attempting to break the bar for yourself. Whereas school competition is, there's 40 kids in the classroom, only two of you can get an A. Who's gonna, who's gonna do it? Yeah, yeah. Right. Or, or, you know, we can have extra recess if everybody gets a hundred on their spelling test. Yep. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, I didn't think about that. It is, it's kind of hyper competition. Yeah. But it's like, sort of, and it's sort of a dog eat dog competition. Right. But like hidden in this like Valentine's day party, right. It's like, oh, in this sweet, it's cool, you know, but it is, it is this, this, yeah. And, and, and the winners don't really win, but man, do the losers lose. I mean, that, that's the other thing too. It's, it, it's, yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about this competition. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that. But I like, I, I like that. How you kind of put that structure. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. So you, you have an interesting position because you are the, you're the head of, and help, help me clarify is skank dyslexic or LD? Oh, look at you. I like that question. That's controversial from the get-go. Um, so, uh, so I'm the head of school at Skank. Um, we're in Atlanta. We serve kindergarten through sixth grade students. Um, we would say that we uh, uh, serve students with dyslexia. Done. I'm actually transitioning. Next year, I'm, I'm moving to Boston this summer. I'm going to be the head of school of a, uh, a second through 12th grade school called Ryanmark School on the North Shore of Boston, um, uh, and they talk more in terms of LD. And I, there's no difference in mission. I think part of it is literally just some of its markets, some of its region, just how we talk about this, um, which we have a whole nother conversation about. Um, but uh, at, at Skank, specifically at Skank, um, we look at kiddos whose primary uh, a difficulty is an inability to access that code, right? That if we could get you the skills and the tools you need to access that alphabetic code, boom, right? You're gonna you're gonna launch. We're also unique, and we have this kind of like um, accelerated remediation model. So kids only come to us for two, three years by design. So I think to your point, in, in some LD programs, right? So when we talk about a, a dyslexia as a, a branch of learning disabilities, there's some kiddos who, who need more runway room, right? 
who um, uh, uh, the complexities of their learning is going to need most likely more than two years, right? And they and they they might um, always need a a place that uh, is uh, built or that 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 they can't leave and then figure out that competition, right? That's not ever going to be healthy for them, right? And so right. there's you know um, programs like that, but skanks skanks a little bit more that kiddo who that Shally Saywit Shaywitz dyslexia kiddo who uh, just needs help accessing the code. Do y'all do dysgraphia and dyscalculia as well? So, yeah, so what- what or should we, we call it the Ds versus LD? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and, and there's a whole other thing. Like, it's also just like the spectrum of learning, right? right. Um, it's the spectrum of learning. So what we try to do is figure out, can, do we have the tools and the time to help this kiddo, right? right? Um, uh, so there are definitely kids that come to us that are dysgraphic. Uh, uh, there are definitely kids, I can't say dys- dyscalculia. I can barely say it, dyscalculia. So I just right. say dyscalcula. Yeah, I do too, because I feel like I'm saying it's like a horror movie. It's like dyscalculia has come, which can't be healthy for the child either. But so we definitely have kids, you know, um, that struggle with that as well. Again, our definition would be, can, do we have the tools and the time to be, you know, to help you? No, and then our primary focus in terms of remediation is going to be that reading piece. Right. But as with all things, you know, you get a kid um, and this is where I get a little frustrated by the D's, not the D, just the definition of the D's. Um, and this are understandable, but I think unhelpful determination to have a cutoff point. Well, this is this and that that is not because um, if you go to fourth or fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade without support and identification, reading can be your primary primary difficulty, but everything is impacted. You can't read. Everything is impacted. So you know, you, you're going to present as dyscalculic, you know, or there's some, you know, there's so many things, right, that are a result of a lack of, of, of um, uh, support that it becomes more about just how do we help this kid? And that's kind of what our outreach has evolved into. Um, you know, I'm all about, we got to identify kids early. We, I think there's, I think we should empower kids by talking about how they learn. I think giving it a name is empowering. I also think we just need to help kids who are struggling and, and maybe not, and in, in certain cases, not worry so much about the label, the testing, da, da, and just instead say, this kid needed help yesterday. Let's start helping. Yeah, and you definitely hit, hit my heart um, because I have fa- I found that in the advocacy for my own child, you know, as I'm asking for resources, et cetera, and they're talking about specifically the reading language arts block. And I'm sitting here looking at them going, you're failing to understand that his inability to read is going to impact every other subject. And he is gifted in math and you're taking that away from him because he can't read the word problems. Right. So. <laughs> right. Um, Dr. Julie Washington, um, who's an amazing researcher in, in this field, always says that um, uh, when you can't read, every test is a reading test. Yep. So Love true. that quote. Love it. Yeah. We can't read every test as a reading test. Absolutely. And, you know, for some reason, that seems to be a shocking thing to say to people. Isn't it shocking that it's shocking? No, you're right. It it just, the, and it's it's education. We, we, you know, we have this kind of like industrial age idea of how we educate kids. You know, reading happens here. And then we, you know, you switch to a new conveyor belt and math happens here. And the whole thing is built around this kind of separation, departmentalization and da, 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 da. And it, and that's where, again, I get all frustrated and, and also excited. I'm like, it's our LD kids who are the most fascinating examples of learning. Like this, they, this is learning. This is, you know, it's, this is our opportunity to see learning happening. It's not effortless, which means we can learn so much, but we don't. Instead, we, yeah, we keep. And like this, 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 this um, trigger warning. like a friend of mine whose child is dyslexic is really struggling with the school that they're in because he's doing all of his work right but he's getting all of his answers wrong because he didn't follow the instructions correctly right that's what's most important that's what's most important and it's and this particular subject is math again and we're sitting here you know as our friends supporting her looking at her going this teacher's not getting it right right and that's not teacher bashing because I'm not invested in teacher bashing. I'm invested in our children learning. Right. And 
it's, you know, it's sitting here going, okay, but math should be about math. Math shouldn't be about, I only want you to do steps one through two, but not three, three through five and actually solve the problem. Right. 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 And, and, and I so appreciate your comment that you're not into teacher bashing and I'm not either. I'm a little into teacher preparation bashing at times. I will say that. I will say we got four years to figure this out. Why aren't we spending time? Um, but so I, so I completely agree. And, and, and again, though, it goes back to that whole kind of system. Like, what do we value? We value you being able to learn in 45 minutes or less, me being able to correct it in 10 minutes or less, you know, da, da, da. And our kids can you know, bunk that system. What we also know in life, when you're in the corporate, corporate world, if you figure out how to do it more efficiently, nobody cares if you didn't do it the way it was normally done. It was like, oh, this is so much better. Let's reward this, but let's punish it you know, up until then, which is just, and to me, it's the same thing with them. Uh, not giving kids calculators. N nothing drives me more crazy than not get, like the kid is getting, you know, additional and uh, explicit support, hopefully maybe in reading, right? And we recognize, oh, they don't know. They can't pull out the, right? They can understand more in peace, but they can't retrieve the efficiently. How do we help them? Then we get to math class and it's like, well, that's cheating. That's cheating if we give you a calculator, not recognizing that we're wasting all of our time trying to pull the, pull out four just like we're wasting time pulling out the mm -hmm. um it's just it's crazy because i gotta tell you i you know i can write tons of equations but i write them in excel what is excel excel is essentially a calculator right it's cheating it would be it's, it's essentially cheating in school but it's not yeah yeah because if the formula doesn't work excel is going to reject it it's going to you know give me a pop-up window and it's going to say this formula doesn't work because you know it's well it's not going to tell me because it's just going to tell me the formula doesn't work and do i need help which you know it's going to offer me bad help and <laughs> right, right yeah exactly but you know i'm going to write one formula on one row and i'm going to drag it down across you know three thousand rows of data and boom there's my answer yeah i cheated yeah my boss doesn't care my boss simply cares that the bottom number is the number that I report, and that number is directionally accurate. Right, right, <laughs> right. It's and, 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 and as parents, I think that's the struggle we have is there's the reality of what our kids are in, right? We can't in third grade say, well, your, your teacher's wrong, you're right. Let's, you know, we, it's not, that's not, it's also not a helpful thing. But it's also balancing and helping them understand, yes, this is super hard. Like, so, uh, my daughter is in third grade, just like, so she's actually at my school and, uh, uh, and obviously, you know, lots of support, lots of opportunity, but time, it, it, it still breaks my heart. The, uh, the anxiety she brings to anything that she perceives as being timed doesn't even mean it is timed. The percent, the, the, you know, uh, she, she was always talking about dyslexia robs a child of time. And it's so true and having to help her navigate that because time is a reality I can't shield her from. So how do I kind of bolster, yeah, this sucks, but you can do it with, this also just sucks. Yeah. So not to discourage you, because I don't know the ages of all your children either, but mine's in seventh grade and time is still oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. a massive anxiety trigger for him. And you know, because of COVID, we kept it virtual the entire sixth grade year. And, you know, he would get something that would say, um, you've got 30 minutes for this test. He would instantly freak out. He wouldn't share his freak out and he would do the test as fast as he could. And then he wouldn't do very well because he didn't read half the test. He just stuck answers in there. And then he would come to me and he would be like, mom, I only got a 36 on my test. I'd be like, why did, you know, I thought you said you were ready for the test. I mean, and we tell them all the time. I'm like, as long as you tried your hardest, I don't care what grade you think. Yeah, right. Of course. You know, because none of this matters. <laughs> and, um, you know, but he, but when he looks at me and he says, well, I only had 30 minutes for the test and I panicked. And so I did it as fast as I could. I'm, you know, I, we spent the entire year going, you have extra time. You need to understand, but the teacher said to the whole class that didn't apply to you. <laughs> right. 
Right. But it was an entire school year and he, you know, and now it's the next year and we're halfway through it and he still has that anxiety trigger and he still, he still goes, the teacher says I have to do it in 30 minutes. I'm going to do it in 30 minutes. And, you know, he's like halfway through it and he's realizing that he's not doing very well. And then he's like, wait a minute, I have extra time, but he'll still just, you know, he, he's proud of himself. And if he can do a test in less than eight minutes. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand where this is coming from. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and, and part of it is, you know, part of it's, I think, uh, kind of that silly middle school board. They're also the reason they don't wear a coat at recess. It's like, why well, don't you wear it? It's, it's 10 degrees. You could wear a coat, but I'm not going to. So you're, you're, you're describing my life right now. He's right. in t-shirts and shorts. I'm like, it's 20 degrees. <laughs> That'll work. Um, but, and, and we do inadvertently reward kids for time, we just, it's ridiculous, but we do. So my son is um, he's also dyslexic. He went to my school for two years and now he's at another uh, 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 another independent school down the road. And we were fortunate that we could make that happen. And in, when we're looking at schools, you know, I'm pretty dogmatic and I'm interrogating. Well, blah, 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 blah. And so I asked the school, you know, what do you do about um, accommodations and extended time? And uh, cause I also, you know, I want him to have it, but I also don't want him in the hallway. If he's not a hallway kid, that ain't gonna work. Where, you know, I everyone else is done, and you know. Anyway, one of my favorite dads I ever heard is they explain what they do, but they said, but you know, our, our first uh, kind of our first line of defense is this: is we we shouldn't be giving assessments that are built around time. And I was like, I will write you a check the rest of my life. That is the best answer I've ever heard. And we're it's right. Why do we, you know? I, I got into leadership because I could define my own time. You know, it, I never have to do something outside of an emergency situation where I, I have to produce something that is going to be consumed and judged by other people in 30 minutes or less. Never. Yeah. And like, I've, I've got deadlines, but I don't, I don't have a task assigned to me with somebody standing there with a stopwatch, you know, play, right. you know, because they don't want me to do it in 30 minutes. They right. want me to get it right. Right. Except in school. Yes. You know, and again, even in an emergency situation, it's going to take as long as it's going to take. Right. You know, management might be checking in every 15 to 20 minutes saying, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? You know, but if you push back and go, I'm not done yet because of X, they go, great. How can I support you? You know, keep going, keep up the good work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's just... And then that's why as parents, we also have to figure out what, where can we offer our kids spaces where they can be successful? Um, and that's hard too. You know, I, I sometimes meet parents and uh, school's so hard and the kid's not doing well and we have the tutors and, da, 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 and they say, so we had to drop football or we had to drop the play. And I'm like, oh my God, stop, whatever you do, drop everything else drop the tutor for God's sake. Don't drop. We got to give our kids spaces where they can be successful so that when they get out of this, they have a, they have a, a kind of a map and an image of what it, that they are, they can do things they can achieve. hundred um, percent. And my mom yeah. used to always ride me, you know, saying your, your kid's not being a kid because he's going to tutoring three nights a week. And I'm like, but we're going to soccer practice one night a week and he's got a game every weekend and he's great at soccer and he loves soccer. And, you know, yeah. I give him something that's outside of the school and tutoring environment that makes him genuinely happy that he enjoys. Yeah. It's so important. <laughs> it is so important. So you brought it up and I, I definitely want to talk about it. Let's talk about the outreach program. Um, can you describe it? Yeah, so at, at the Skank School, we have something called the Dyslexia Resource, right, which is our outreach arm. Um, it it per, uh, exists primarily, uh, well, it, it, our, our mission is to empower communities to serve dyslexic learners, and we do that through tutoring, training, and education. So there's um, the education piece is kind of like what we're doing right now, right? Lots of variety of things, webinars, the Made by Dyslexia stuff, right? That's that's that kind of general education piece. We do a lot of teacher training. Um, uh, 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 we are, uh, Skank is a, um, I guess an affiliate, if you will, of the uh, Orton-Gillingham uh, Academy. 
So we do a lot of Orton-Gillingham training. We do kind of official Orton-Gillingham training. And then we also try to do a little bit more accessible Orton-Gillingham inspired training, you know, for the teacher who needs something tomorrow. Um, and I think that's all great stuff. I'm super proud and honored to be part of that. And then with the tutoring piece, that's what I'm really into. And it's, it's, we do some traditional tutoring, like you call us, you're going to pay us money and we're going to work with your kid after school. We do some of that, but that's limited capacity. Um, but we are uh, in partnership with a, an Atlanta-based group called Purpose Built Schools. Um, I won't get into it all. It's a really, really cool uh, story, really great program. Years ago, they, uh, a, a group of philanthropists kind of uh, invested in a kind of high crime, low income corner of Atlanta um, and uh, uh, with an, with being very mindful of trying to uh, kind of resurrect this community without gentrifying the community, which they've had moderate success on. Um, it's gotten harder as they've been more successful, but they essentially went in from, from cradle to career um, uh, uh, working with families and they brought in, you know, medical, they brought in job training, they brought in uh, legal services to prevent evictions, all this stuff. And they also had a school piece. Um, uh, super successful. Uh, so out of that, they've tried to replicate that work all over the country. Uh, and as part of it, they went to another section of, uh, of Atlanta uh, and within Atlanta public schools, it's called the Carver Cluster. It's what they were, that's the, you know, kind of the tract from the elementary to the high school. It is the lowest uh, uh, income census tract uh, area of Georgia. It's uh, uh, south of Atlanta. Um, it's everything you imagine and associate with poverty. Um, uh, if, if you're familiar, there was, um, uh, shortly after uh, the murder of George Floyd, there was, uh, a shooting of, uh, a shooting in Atlanta and a lot of, uh, protests and, and anyway, the school is right there, literally right there. So just lots of, lots of things, lots of difficulties in this community. So they have gone and they're trying to change the trajectory of these kids' lives. So we have partnered with them and we go in, uh, we being the Skank School of Dyslexia Resource, we take our trained folks um, and we work uh, traditionally with 300 kids on two elementary school campuses twice a week in small groups doing the same kind of remedi remediation, reading remediation that we do at the Skank School, we try to bring to these communities. We have no idea if these kids are dyslexic or not. Um, uh, uh, we're working with um, kids that are testing between the 11th and 30th percentile, um, uh, the bottom 10 most qualifying for tier three services, right? right. You could argue, we're, I would argue we're tier three, but we're technically more of a kind of tier two service for these kiddos. Um, they all present as dyslexic. I refer to it as functionally dyslexic. Right. Um, the, you know, the kids who are, who are dyslexic tend to just need more. The kids who aren't dyslexic tend to respond faster, which is, you know, no surprise. Right. Um, but it's really powerful work for us. It's been this really um, uh, remarkable learning for us. When we first started doing it, part of it was, it was very transactional because we were trying to pay people at market to come, you know, work with these kids. And anyway, it very quickly became apparent that we were, we were a vendor and not a partner. And so we had to stop that. And we had to be like, okay, how do we get our teachers to just spend time in the cafeteria and become part of this community and learn from these teachers as much as we are here to, uh, you know, help, help these kids. Um, and it's been great. And we've had to make a lot of adjustments, um, not in obviously the science of our approach, but in the, but kind of in the reality of our approach that, you know, these kids have very low vocabularies. Right. Um, they, uh, you know, as I'm sure, you know, the number one predictor of a kid's comprehension is their background knowledge. Right. A lot of these kids don't have the same, we can't, we can't bring the same assumptions around background knowledge. Um, my, my, my favorite story uh, is we had, we were, uh, somebody was working with a kiddo and I laugh. It's, it's funny. It's not funny. I think we were giving, I can't remember what we were giving. We were giving some kind of assessment, which we stopped. We gave way too assessments, way too many assessments in the beginning too, thinking we could, you know, do a research study and we were wasting time on assessments, not helping kids, but we're doing it. And the question was something like, how do you keep a bear away on a camping trip or something like that? And this kiddo had never been on a camping trip, had no exposure to camping trip. And, and again, it's, it's sweet. It's sad at the same time. They were just like, so confused why we were near a bear. And they was more like, maybe you shouldn't go near a bear. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, it was, it, they, it was adorable that they were just so perplexed by why in the world we'd be near a bear. Um, but it was also like, oh, you, you don't have the, that's not something, you know, 
Right. In, in your water, they don't have, they don't possess that background knowledge. So yeah, yeah, it, it, doesn't, it has nothing to do with their intellect and everything right. to do with background knowledge, right? right. So anyway, so we've had to make adjustments, and it's just, it's really great work, and it's pushed me further because the initial plan was. We had raised some money. We had talked to some local psychologists. This is years ago. And we were, we were going to get subsidized private testing for kids. Highly subsidized private testing for kids. Isn't that going to be revolutionary? Well, a couple, we got, got the psychologists on board. Couldn't get any schools on board. Nobody wanted to do with it because they didn't want to deal with the consequences of having to admit it, right? But for me, it also, this, it's, it's helped me understand that you know, as a parent and working with parents, so many times we're just devastated by the diagnosis. Oh my God, my kids got dyslexia. They're going to struggle. As you said, time's always going to be an issue. And all that can be true. But dyslexia, the label or the, 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 the uh, diagnosis also represents the mobilization of so much privilege in a child's life. So many adults have come together to get this diagnosis that it's impossible to think that we're actually going to get all, to all the kids that need it, right? And then I get really angry and pissed about the kid who's in the 26th percentile and therefore is not dyslexic because it's supposed to be the 25th. What happens to that kid? That's ridiculous. So I, I, have, I am shifting my thoughts on outreach to more, we need to help kids as much as we need to identify kids, if that makes yeah. sense. Well, and yeah. And, you know, Seidenberg talks a lot about that in his book, Language at the Speed of Sight, mm-hmm. too, you know, about the various identification tools that are used and the flaws behind them and why they're not going to work and why they're going to miss an enormous amount of kids. And But that's the whole push behind the science of reading is it benefits all children and harms none. And, right. you know, when you look at Nate, it's more than just our dyslexic children that are falling behind in the classroom what about, so what about the 44% that isn't dyslexic? What about them? We're not going to teach them. We're going to assume that they have the background knowledge and they can write from experience and be taught comprehension strategies without any of the code and be fine in life. Right. It's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. For 12 years in an environment where you need to seek approval, it's set up for competition. You're going to be told that you're failing because you are failing ridiculed for that every single day and then oh you're ready for your life here you go right oh yeah in 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 the in the atlanta metro area if you uh, as of 2019 i think it was the last time i really uh, i looked at numbers but in Atlanta metro area based on you know kind of nape scores from 2019 or the equivalent of i can't remember what exactly assessment that they came to this but it was something like 55 to 60 percent of all kids were reading below grade level. You look at kids of color, it was higher. You look at kids in poverty, it was much higher, you know, astronomical. And what, what that actually equates to is you, you in this metro, Atlanta metro area, you are more likely to have survived the Titanic than you would be to be a competent reader in third grade. That's, that's the same, right? And I used it before the pandemic, I used to say if 55, 60% of our kids had the flu, Holy shit, we would be in the national news shutting down the city again, pre-pandemic, you know, we would be mobilizing. And that's also, you know, we have, we have, as a, as a society, as a world, we took drastic action over the last three years. And I'm not, and rightfully so in most cases to try to prevent a disaster. But now we're going to go right back to the disaster. that's just a little bit slower in, in its outcomes. It's just mind blowing me. It's just like, why, why aren't we, we've proved what we can mobilize and do something, but there's no urgency, which is just. I can't remember if it was this morning or if it was at one point yesterday, I had a headline in in my news feed that said uh, 900,000 US deaths in uh, from COVID over over three years. And I wanted to go, but we've got 9 million plus American illiterate adults but we're upset over 900,000 deaths and not 9 million plus. And that's, that's, that's not me saying those deaths aren't tragic because they right. absolutely are, but it's the scale of the panic over 900,000 versus the lack of panic over 9 million plus and growing. Right. 
Right. And yeah, I, I saw that too. And, you know, and it is crazy. And I, I, I guess it's the psychology of both. When the first person died in Georgia of COVID, it was like, oh my God, you know, da, da. and now I don't even know how many people have died. And it's all awful and tragic, but I've become numb to it. And so I assume that's also what we we're doing with our kids. It's just like, well, that's too many kids to do anything about. Nine million kids can't read. That's an impossible problem to solve. But it's not. So I want to I want to go down a, a different tangent because you you touched on this earlier, and this is something that I've been having. This is a conversation I've been having with a lot of people lately. Um, is the cultural ingrained idea that illiteracy is the individual's fault, mm-hmm. and um, you being being in Atlanta, you probably saw this. I think this was two years ago. A story came out of Baltimore that hit the national news, and it was a young it was a young black boy who was about to graduate from high school. Um, who had like a 0.7 GPA, who had, he had essentially failed every single grade through elementary, junior high and high school. And here he was on the brink of graduating. And his mother had just discovered that he didn't know anything and what his, what his grades were. And she was, they didn't talk about, you know, was the father present? They didn't talk about how many children there were. They didn't talk about how many jobs she may have. It was simply a mother and a son. And the son very clearly loved his mother. And the mother very clearly loved the son. And they're in one of the poorest schools in Baltimore. And she's simply asking for help. She's like, I don't understand how we got here. This, this, this isn't okay. How do we fix the situation? The literacy rate for this particular school was like 1%, which, you know, obviously speaks to a massive systemic problem within the school itself. There were thousands of comments on this particular uh, piece, and they were all that it's the mother's fault. Every single solitary comment was, where has she been for the last 11 years? She should have known. This is all her fault, blah, 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 blah. And I was blown away at the, the cultural response across thousands of comments that the illiteracy was, was the fault of the child and the mother. And I, so I started thinking about it from that perspective. And if you, if you think about various instances across our society, like um, I think it was, uh, a year ago, gosh, it may have been. <laughs> I have no sense of time having been quarantined this long. <laughs> Maybe it was two years ago. A, a local magazine did, a, they posted a meme on social media and made fun of illiteracy. Well, and everybody was laughing at it. Isn't this funny? And, you know, it was being shared. I mean, it was just burning like wildfire. And I reached out to the magazine and went, illiteracy isn't funny you know, what are you doing? You know, and I just started bombarding them with statistics and they immediately started defending themselves going, this is supposed to be a joke. I'm like, it's not funny. And I just kept bombarding them with statistics until they took it down. Good for you. But I was sitting here going, why, how have we, how have we, and why have we allowed the idea across our culture to get there that the literacy is individual's fault? And considering that we're there, how do we change that idea? Because it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. That, Curveball. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. And it's so, I mean, you're, my mind's going in so many directions and you're, it's so true. And it's, I think to me, there's a couple of things. I, I think, I think in society in general, when things are hard, we try to avoid that. We have to simplify them. Hard things, complex things, contradictory things have to be simplified. And named. Right. So I think that's just what we do. And it, I find it fascinating through my lens uh, of this, because I think to me, part of we think if illiteracy is an individual's fault, it has to be because, or to some degree, it has to be because we have such faith in the school system to be operating appropriately that it's a it couldn't be a failure 
of the system itself, because we believe so highly in that system, that the, the individual must be the reason this is not working. And at the same time, in the last three years, we have put so much pressure and it has been so clear how many things we have ab ab abdicate, abdicated, what is the word? Yep. You know, thank That's you. Because <laughs> uh, you can't pull it out, dyslexic soup. Um, but we have advocated so much of our responsibility to schools. You know, schools shut down, but they still needed to feed kids. Why the why the school that we work with, that we do outreach for, shut down during COVID, became a food bank. Yep. And it's wonderful, but why? When did it become the school's responsibility to be the food bank for these kids, right? Um, uh, you know, we don't want schools teaching that, this, or we don't want schools teaching that. Why aren't you teaching your kid moral values? Why don't when did it become the school's responsibility? Anyway, all this to say, and yet it's, I, that's where I get so confused by it being the individual's fault because the only way it could be the individual's fault is because we have such faith in the school. I also think the, the number, the biggest danger to education is nostalgia. We all have this misconception of what our school experience was and clearly it worked for us and therefore this is what it needs to be for our own kids. We forget that, you know, and, and so, I don't know if you experience this, so many, I mean, so many parents, so many parents who uh, uh, to varying levels of success and let's, let's define sex by, by uh, socioeconomic status for now, right? Just, I know it's not, but for now. So highly successful people whose kids dyslexic, they're dyslexic, but they don't even, they, they don't understand until their child goes through this and they, they can't, they're not a strong reader. They're not a strong writer, but they've figured out things in life. And I, I, I think some of the difference, I guess now is the stakes are so much higher. We, we have less room for even with kids of privilege and opportunity and da, 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 to not be succeeding in school because the stakes have gotten higher. I don't know, I'm rambling because I don't have, it's a great point and I don't have a great answer to why we've assigned this to be the individual's problem. Well, and you know, I don't, I don't think that there necessarily is an answer, but I, I like, definitely, I appreciate how you framed it because I think that you're spot on. You know, I, what I've always said is we're ingrained, you know, it, we're, we're five years old when we're sent to school, right? So during our most impressionable years, five through 18, we're in this environment where we're told we're supposed to give as much submission as we do to our parents, right? And then, you know, five, seven, 20, however many years later, you have a child and you turn around and they're five years old and you send them to the, to the same establishment. I think that I was a little bit different because I had a mother who always bucked against the idea of what the system was supposed to be providing me and to my siblings. Like we were, we were dramatic, all three of us were dramatically at one point or another ripped out of the school by our mother in the middle of the school day <laughs> with her storming into our classroom and taking us by the hand and saying, we're leaving and we're never coming back. And we never did. Wow. Yeah. Um, but I remember sitting in one of the earliest IEP meetings and somebody, I don't even remember what they said. And I turned around and I looked at them and I said, I do not abdicate my authority because my son is in your school. My child, my rules, my way, not yours, period. You are not the parent, I am. And they were like, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was like, if I tell him no, you don't get to tell him yes. That's that's not how this works. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, but I think I hearing you say this too. I, I think so much of that is to your point because your mom set that expectation or that possibility. Because you know, I, I think back, like I. If, had I not gone you know, the career path of men, if I, I don't know what the heck I would have done, but whatever. I did something that wasn't education and wasn't dyslexia. Da, da. I, I am sure my kids would be in school and struggling and hate it. And I'm like, well, that's just what school is. I hated it. I struggled. I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would know to do what you are doing because it, it, 
my, I knew school to suck. I knew it to be hard, miserable, and you got through it. And that's just what it was. And I completely uh, agree with it. And the story of her ripping my brother out, my brother's 12 years older than I am, ripping my brother out of elementary school, putting their house on the market the next day and moving a week later so she could put him in a different school. <laughs> it's still told at family gatherings and he's 60. <laughs> yeah. So no, I, I completely agree. I agree with you that I had this, this precedent set, but that's one thing that I really try to impart to parents is you don't abdicate your authority. You're the parent. So right. you're, you're, I think we could go around <laughs> and around this because you definitely hit my heart there. Um, from the position that you have though, I think you have incredible insight sort of like you were talking about with your son that you put back in school, you know, you were interviewing them, you were asking them questions. What are things that parents can ask, can seek? What should they be seeking? What, I mean, what sort of advice would you give to parents who are, they're just trying to navigate this path? You know, what, what do they need to be looking for? And bearing in mind that, you know, you and I both know not everybody can afford to put their child in a private dyslexia school too, right? right. Yep. So they're having to navigate public schools, but we get a lot of questions from parents who are in one state looking to move to another state and they're trying to figure out where to go. What kinds of questions should they be asking, do you think? Yeah, it's, it's a good question um, <laughs> and a complicated one, right? So I, I always tell parents, this is like your number, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, number one goal is self-confidence. That's it. We can figure out the reading piece step by step, day by day. If our kids stop believing in themselves, that's a heck of a lot harder to build back up and turn that ship around. So I personally, when I think about it, education, I think about what we, our number one goal is to figure out how can we find the best environment that's going to preserve their self-confidence the most, right? I know some great schools that do some great stuff, public and private, but the way they go about it may not be, again, it's the hallway kid, right? That's, and I, I don't have a hallway kid. Some people do. Some people have, you know, I'm so determined, doesn't matter, da, da, that ain't me, right? So that's, I, I, I'm just as interested in not only what you're going to do, but how you're going to do it. Because there's, I would also make the difficult choice to say, I don't want tier three. Don't give it to me because it ain't going to work for us because the emotional piece is going to get in the way kind of thing. So I, that's, I, that's number one for me is not just what are you going to do, but how are you going to do it? And does that, what does that look like for my kid? Does that make sense? Da, 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 right. So I think that's, that's a big piece. And then, um, you know, I, I, I always, you know, when talking to schools, you know, what does your dyslexia program look like? What does dyslexia support look like? And just that alone, you're going to get 90% of what you need because it's either going to be something like, no, I'm sorry, what? You know, and then that alone tells you, okay, well, they don't have a lot of knowledge, right? So if we land here, a lot of advocacy on my part, a lot of work, a lot of fighting, screaming, da, 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 da. Um, so you can find it a lot then. Um, uh, and then, but even and beyond that, right? Um, uh, what, what, what is the curriculum you use for uh, reading instruction, right? Let's, let's look at the curriculum. What role does phonics play in your uh, reading instruction? You know, if we start talking about Fontas and Pinnell and we start talking about- um, uh, uh, Lucy Calkins. Thank you, Reader's <laughs> Workshop. And I'm, I'm, not, no, I'm not anti, I mean, there's places, but if we're, if we're relying on three queuing system and pictures, that's that alone, probably not gonna be the, the best position, the best place. Um, you know, anytime everyone, you know, even, oh, we got a great program. We have a digitized remediate, you know, well, well I'm already saying, well, okay, so you're gonna put my kid in front of a laptop. Chances are that's also not what we need. Um, and unfortunately, the, I think the truth, as you know better than anybody, the reality is it's going to be exhausting. It's, it's going to be frustrating. It's going to be disappointing. And you just got to keep going. And that's the bottom line is you got to keep doing it. Yeah. Um, 
So because you're going to Landmark, which is like my dream, but I live in Houston. I don't live in Boston. <laughs> Get a boarding boat. Come on, come on. Ninth grade. You can live there. Yeah. Um, it's definitely on the table. <laughs> um, let's talk about writing instruction because I think what a lot of, because my child is this graphic and I spend, you know, He's in seventh grade, his comprehension's on a ninth grade level. You know, the dysgraphia is on a first grade level. My friends who have dysgraphic children were really diving deep into this world because our frustration levels are, are really, really high because their frustration levels are really, really high, right? I think a big piece that gets missed in our community is we talk extensively about reading intervention, but we don't talk about writing intervention. We don't talk about the criticality of teaching written expression in conjunction with teaching reading and that's lost collectively you know now we've lost William too and so that piece is you know we've got a gap within our community but within our educational system across the whole we've lost our grip on written expression how do we from your perspective and again Landmark's got this huge writing program right how do we pull written expression back in and make everybody understand that written expression has got to be taught at the same time that reading does as well, that they really do go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've, I have so many thoughts on that. Totally agree. Um, I think helping people understand that just like we need a, a structured, explicit approach to phonics instruction, for a lot of our kids, we need a structured, explicit approach to written expression. That doesn't mean we don't value creativity. That doesn't mean we don't create spaces for all those things that our kids love, right? Um, but that we also, you know, spending time reading and writing about nonfiction text is super important. Could be super boring, but it's super important. Right. Um, uh, I'm a big fan too of writing revolution and, uh, you know, that. You know, love that. Um, I also think we have to be mindful. Uh, uh, and again, now I'm going to bring it back to the pandemic, right? I feel like we're at a stage in the pandemic where we have to make compromise. We're not like comfortable with any of it, right? Uh, we just got to make some compromises. With our, with our kiddos, it's similar. We're, we're, there's going to reach a point where we have to make some uncomfortable compromises. And, and for me, that comes to where does the role of adaptive technology or assistive technology come in at some point? When can we stop, depending on a child's age or what we're trying to accomplish in this particular task, when do we just, we go straight to uh, uh, speech to text and we spend time explicitly talking about, okay, speech to text, how do we then go through an editing process? How do we go through an organization? What, what does all this look like when I'm not even asking you to write down a sentence anymore and I'm literally just asking you and having a, an explicit instruction around speak into the computer, let's figure out how we take that kind of mind dump and turn that into uh, something that meets the academic standards uh, that we would expect and you know communication to do. Because that's the other thing I think we have to remember and help kids understand is the way we talk and the way we write are two different things and that's okay. Okay, but they're two different things. There's going to be some work involved. Because um, most kids, uh, you know, obviously, if you have, you know, uh, expressive uh, language disorder, you know, it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, but for a lot of kiddos, it's, it's, it's the trend, as you know, better than anybody, it's the translation from this to this, where everything falls apart. So there comes a point where maybe we don't worry about this as much, especially, and, and we start thinking about how do we use some adaptive technology, which is very controversial. A lot of people will disagree with me. Um, but I think, I, I think there's elements of that because I think would also, if that will help a child feel confident in their ability to, to, to create written expression, well, that's a huge win right there. So I, I, I think we got to balance that a little bit. Um, yeah. I don't think what you've said is controversial. I think the people that may view it as controversial are simply thinking that, you know, kids just being handed a computer. And that's not what you're saying at all. You're saying, teach them how to use the tool, but also teach them how to manipulate the tool in order to work for them in order to, so that they can be successful. Yeah. Whereas, you know, with, within the advocacy or the parent community, you know, there's, there's the perception that in a lot of cases, um, assistive technology is simply handing a kid a tool. And God knows I've said it as well. We can't 
hand a kid a speech to text and go here and just think that they automatically know how to use it. Um, because I can definitely testify that that doesn't work and it doesn't work not just for the child, but it doesn't work for the teacher as well. And to give a specific example, um, they were using speech to text with my son in fifth grade right before the pandemic. And he took a test and he used the speech to text tool to populate the answers on the test. And the answer was close your eyes on your keyboard and just hit keys randomly. So it's just the string of nonsensical characters and letters and numbers, right? And so they asked for a meeting and, you know, curriculum and, and instruction are there and the teachers are there and the counselor's there and his case manager's there and everybody's there to tell us, you know, to show us this test and to try to get us to punish him for being so belligerent that this is what he did. You know, my husband gets up and walks out of the room and I quickly get up and follow him and I take the test and I call a meeting with the assistive technology department for the district separate from that entire group. And I put the test in front of them and I went, how is this possible using speech to text? Please teach me. And they said, because the microphone picked up all of the ambient noise. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it just spit out yeah. garble. And so then I take the test back to the school and I actually formally called an IEP meeting and I went, this is not my child being belligerent. This is the result of ambient noise. I didn't even ask them to change the grade of the test. Their immediate solution is, oh, we'll, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> was we'll sit them in the hallway to use the speech to text tools. And we went, no, that's not gonna happen either. My son immediately gave up on speech to text. He refuses to use it <laughs> because that angered him so much that they thought that he was being bad. Right. And so he's like, no, I'll, I'll never use speech to text. It isn't going to happen. And I'm like, we need to get back there. So yeah. I appreciate what you've said, but I think that that's why people may be controversial is they're, they're not thinking about the education piece that has to go with it. Right. Yeah. I, I think the education, I mean, it's just like, you can hand me a toothbrush and I'm still going to get cavities if no one ever explains to me how to use a toothbrush and its importance and 30 seconds versus two minutes and all those things. Right. Same thing. That's a great with, analogy too. Reach <laughs> text. I mean, it's, you got to help the kid use the tool. And so, and I would argue all kinds of things with this too. First of all, let's say we think the kid is being belligerent instead of rushing to punishment, which I appreciate if kids are belligerent, we have to have a consequence that da. Let's pause for a moment and figure out what's motivating them to be belligerent. What is, kids aren't bad by nature. So what's motivating them? So, but as you know that, uh, and I would also, you know, uh, so we got to teach kids. And then I think there's a, I think we have to do a task analysis. Every time we, we, we give a kid an assessment, dyslexic or not, we need to go through a task analysis of understanding what are we asking kids to show us they know versus what are we asking kids to do? Because those often don't align, right? So for instance, and I'm, now I'm going down a rabbit hole, but your son's taking this test, it's like the science test, right? So we're using speech to text. To text to, are, is the purpose of the assessment to gauge and understand his knowledge around the scientific facts and formulas that we went over and or is the purpose of the test for him to be able to articulate that in written form. And, you know, all these things, because, you know, maybe the solution in the first place was to just let him verbally tell you what he knows and create a different space, a different environment for him to articulate in writing. Because it's a, just a very different task. And there's time, there's organization, there's all these executive functioning skills are coming to bear, right? So the idea that we ever need to do this in 30 minutes or less is a bad idea, but I'm not against evaluating his knowledge in 30 minutes or less by having a verbal, anyway, you know all this, but it drives me insane. No, but I think, no, I, but that's perfectly said. And I think parents definitely need to, need to hear that. And teachers need to hear that too, because it's, you're right. You know, and the perception that giving a child a test orally and then giving you oral responses somehow doesn't prove that they know the material, I, I don't, that argument I've heard from time to time and I'm sitting here going, 
they articulated it. I don't understand where the breakdown is because they didn't write it down because they didn't color in the little box or. <laughs> and so we're interested in, is that what we're trying to understand? Yeah, um, back to the earlier example, is it the math problem or is it the following the instructions? Right, right, <laughs> right. And again, that's refreshing because that's what I want your son to understand. That's what I, and it, it's hard because there's, we're, we're asking kids who are too young to understand things that are too complex, right? Um, because speech picks is such good. Like I dictate everything. I dictate everything when I go back. And when I do sit down and write, I have to, I have to close. I will work from home when I have to write an essay, you know, or a magazine article or something, because I have to sit in silence and say it out loud 500 times a day. It's but I, I I I actually feel confident in my writing, but I have a very laborious process to do it, and that's okay. Yeah. Um. That's okay. And yeah. But, yeah. But I think that that's perfectly said. That's okay. So we're at just over an hour. So I wanted to wrap up and I like to wrap up when I have guests like you to ask, is there anything that I've not asked you that you feel is important? I, and this is a, sort of a mean question, sorry. <laughs> is there anything that you feel that you wanna say or, or point out that we've not touched on yet? And if the answer is no, that's okay. <laughs> I don't think so. Other than I will go back, so I'll say, and tell them blue, confidence, confidence, confidence. What can we do to help give our kids confidence? And sometimes that means, I think, making compromises we're not fully comfortable with, but confidence, confidence, confidence. I'm, I'm a big proponent of confidence. I love it. So thank you so much for joining us. This is this has been awesome. So, been so much fun. <laughs> you've made, you've helped make it fun. So I'm so appreciative of that, but I hope that everybody has a great day and we'll be back soon. <laughs>